This episode is brought to you by Jewish Workshops, your home for interactive Jewish content and online community where you can join your favorite lecturers and mentors and receive guidance to help you grow and transcend the challenges of daily life. One of the challenges my audience shares with me most often is a deep dissatisfaction and yearning to create a means of livelihood that aligns with who they truly are. This is why I've partnered with Jewish Workshops to bring you a free live webinar this coming Monday, June 26 at 12 p.m. Eastern, where I I will help you see how your innate gifts can be turned into a money-making endeavor that you'll love to wake up to every single day. Yes, you can make money serving the world, doing something you love. I will help you go from purpose to profit. Head over to yaeltrush.com forward slash FPTP. Space is limited on this webinar, so be sure to secure your spot right away at yaeltrush.com forward slash FPTP. PTP. Jewish Money Matters episode 332, the epic story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. They threw me out of the building very fast. They said, never come visit us again. We're not interested in hearing this. So I was stuck. I had a solution for a problem, but I just needed access to the medical medical information, like addresses and who's having what. They didn't want to share cause. So I was, I was looking for a solution. And I told my friend, don't worry. Israel was created with the greatest innovation ever. And you and know that is <laughs> chutzpah. Exactly. <laughs> we don't take no for an answer. And I went ahead and I, I got some money for my bar mitzvah and, and some other guy chipped in. But you're 17 years old at this point, right? I wasn't even. It was it was a summer when I was still 16 and a half years old. I was almost 17. I went to New York, had a great time. I went into Radio Shack, God bless their memory. It was the greatest store for every little boy. Love that store. I bought two police scanners and I, I came back to Israel. I opened an underground command center that I could listen to any emergency the police are dispatching, fire, ambulances. And I started sending it out to my friends. Every time that I call, I page them. You just heard Ellie Beer telling us about the very early days of what became possibly the most important organization in Israel today, United Hatzalah. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm in conversation with United Hatzalah founder, Ellie Beer. As you just heard, Ellie and I talk about those very early days. What inspired this Jerusalem teenager to try to solve a major problem he identified in the medical emergency response system? But what happened after Ellie's bar mitzvah money ran out? How did Ellie continue to finance and further develop this much-needed operation. We talk about the biggest donors, United Hatzalah's volunteers, the challenge of uniting all the volunteers Ellie had inspired and recruited across Israel under one singular umbrella, and how that propelled the growth of United Hatzalah, the real meaning of wealth, and what giving money to others can do for a person, the ROI of partnering financially with United Hatzalah. As Ellie put it in a conversation, how much would you spend to save a life? How does Ellie keep going despite the hard and traumatic experiences that are part and parcel of his work. I know that wherever you are in the world, when you hear Ellie Beer today, you will be moved, you will be changed for good, and you will be moved to help United Hatzalah. Here's the exceptional and yes, epic Ellie Beer. 
Ali Beer. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Really, I am so looking forward. A book recently came out, Ellie, 90 Seconds, The Epic Story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah by Rabbi Nachman Selter, in which you share your story, the story of United Hatzalah. It was such an incredible read. Before we dive into the epic story of United Hatzala and your own story, perhaps, Ellie, you can give us the the elevator pitch, the brief version of what is United Hatzala and what makes it stand out among, among other medical um, emergency services for those people who might not be yet familiar with the organization. Well, the whole United Hatzalah is all about al regal on one leg. It's all about getting to an emergency within the first 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. That's when you can really make a difference. We don't need right. to be these huge ambulances or fancy uh, hospitals. We're just simple paramedics or EMTs or nurses on bicycles or on motorcycles. Mm-hmm. They're on time before someone is going to die, God forbid, have brain damage. That's why it exists. Excellent. Amazing. So now let's take, let's, let's go back in time because very early on in your life, you conceived of this vision. You had this dream, or maybe it was a set of dreams for what turned out to be the United Hatzada that you, you just described, the United Hatzada that, that we all know and love today. I want you to perhaps walk us through that vision, those dreams, and the experiences that cemented these in your head. Um, perhaps even let's start with the first initial experience you had with the terrorist attack and what happened then. Well, I was a young boy growing up in beautiful city of Jerusalem, uh, amazing parents, beautiful family, coming back from school and seeing a bus blow up in front of my eye. I was only six years old. Oh, my gosh. And I remember the trauma. I remember the screaming, the smell of the fire, of the people's burning flesh. And it's something that I will never forget. And that kept me for years thinking, whatever happened to the people that were injured? I saw one person on the floor trying to get up. He was asking for help. And for years, I was just haunted by this thought. Maybe he died or whatever happened to him. I don't know. And I decided one day I'm going to be a doctor and save someone's life. Mm. That's That was always my dream, to save one person's life. Mm-hmm. All started by seeing a bus blow up. And growing up, I used to, I was a student in a, in a, in a little yeshiva in Yerushalayim, Cheder. And I, I didn't have, like they I had ADD and they say the Yiddish sits place. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't sit too long. I heard an ambulance Nearby, I would run out to the window and see what's going on. I want to be in that ambulance. Mm. I want to be in that ambulance. I would always look at an ambulance and like look inside the window, what's going on. And when I was 15 years old, I went to join an ambulance. And it was the greatest feeling in the world. I learned for a few weeks how to save lives, basic stuff. And then sure, the, once I join an ambulance, I am saving people's lives. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I joined, I realized it's not so easy to save someone's life because our average response time on an ambulance was 17 minutes. 17 minutes is an eternity. 17 minutes. You could order a pizza and get a pizza delivered to you a lot faster than 17 minutes today with Uber Eats. I remember sitting in the back of an ambulance and being there inside while the driver is trying to maneuver in between the traffic and with the sirens and everything. And I would see a, a motorcycle passing us from the right and from the left. One is delivering burgers and the other one is delivering pizza. 
had to just disappear after a second because they would just maneuver in between the cars and just disappear. And I said to myself, if I have a choke, I'm calling for a pizza. <laughs> and I hope that, that that pizza delivery man knows what to do because he's going to be there way faster. Than I don't know guys. if he knows what to do or not, but he'll have a bigger chance of saving me than an right. Right, right. And I'm in New York City now, and uh, and I'm, I was just stuck in the traffic for 30 minutes, five blocks. And I, after a while, I was like seeing this, the meters going up and up and up. Mm-hmm. The taxi meter, I said, okay, you know what? I'm just going to walk eight blocks because like I was tired and I said, I'm not moving anymore. And this is, this is what happens to ambulances. Think about it. Someone's calling for help for a little baby not breathing or mother is having a heart attack or... Where someone's in an accident, losing blood, and and they take these huge fire trucks, while you have doctors and paramedics and nursing walking around the street, they don't even know something's happening. They could save that person's life. The idea of United Hetzel is using the power of the people, the volunteers, people who don't want pay, they just want to do good, letting them know something nearby them is happening, and they just run and they stabilize the patient, they stop the bleeding, they do CPR, they do the Heimlich. Right. And ambulance arrives, they they have a patient who's alive and not a not a patient who's brain dead. Right. And I and I remember reading that you had those own experiences, not just sitting in the ambulance, but but literally seeing that you didn't make it on time. And there could have been a doctor in the same building as the baby or the you know, or the person, right? Yeah, I saw a, a seven-year-old boy who whose mother called for help. He was having lunch, eating a hot dog, choked. Mother called for an ambulance, crying, beg, begging them, send an ambulance immediately to save my son who's choking. Son was alive. The son was choking while she was calling for help. She didn't know what to do. She was panicked. She was crying and hysterical. The neighbors came to help. They didn't know what to do. They was, he felt collapsed. After a few minutes, he, he wasn't breathing. He, he lost conscious. He lost his pulse. When we arrived, it was 21 minutes after. One minute later, a doctor runs into the house you know, short of breath. He ran up. He, he saw us. From, he saw the ambulance coming and parking. He realized something's happening. He said, I want to help. And he said, I was across the street the whole time. I didn't know some, some kid is choked. And he said, when you, when the sirens were, were outside, I, I looked out of my window. I came to help. 45 minutes we were working to try to save this kid. And after 45 minutes, he said, there was nothing else he could do. Just bring a sheet to cover him. I realized this kid died. For nothing. He could have been saved because the doctor who was across the street was there and he's watching television while this kid was suffocating to death. Right, right. So now you're what, 16 years old, you're gaining these experiences, you're, you're, you're getting the medical experience, so to speak, and you're watching, you're seeing the problem, you understand the problem, and you have a desire for finding a solution. What happens next? Well, I saw that they have a big gap on emergency response. Bureaucracy is is causing all this thing because, you know, organizations like big handling services are usually run by big unions. They have rules and regulations. How many hours the drivers could sleep? You have to wake them up. It takes time for the driver to wake up. You have to put, he has to go to the bathroom before he takes the ride. The person's meanwhile laying on the floor, not breathing. Take us one or two minutes just get it ready, and then another two minutes to get in the ambulance, and then to get out to the street. And, and I, I started writing down every call and making statistics, weekly statistics. 
and realize that in an average response from the time someone calls for help until the, the team that starts serving that person is 17 minutes. Right. And that's when I said, how do we fix the problem? What do we do? Let's get people who are surrounding these people for an emergency. Let them, let them, let's, let's notify them. You know, Amber Alert, you probably all, you know, in America for sure have Amber Alert. Amber Alert should have been done for this seven-year-old boy who was choking. They should have stopped every broadcast on the one channel they had in Israel and say, sorry to stop the news. Right now they have a seven-year-old boy by the name of Moishi who is choking. And he's on this and this street in Jerusalem. Anyone around this person could go save him because an ambulance is coming from far. But they wouldn't do that because bureaucracy doesn't allow anyone else to interfere with their business. Right. Ambulances make money from service. They won't let others. Like, imagine yourself. Uh, you call a car service, say, hi, can I have a taxi going to, uh, to the airport tomorrow? Or now I need a taxi right away to go to LaGuardia. They said, sorry, it takes 25 minutes. The taxi driver, the taxi dispatcher would never call his competition and say, can you do this? Uh, the guy needs to go to the airport right away. He wouldn't do that. Right. says do the same. They don't share information with someone who's not them. Right. So I decided I'm going to do something to fix the problem. And I went to the ambulance organization that I volunteered and I said, listen, I have a solution for this problem. First of all, they didn't agree there is a problem. They said, we don't have a problem. We're perfect. We're the best mm-hmm. ambulance service. Look at us. We have these fancy white ambulances. It used to be vans and we call it ambulances now. And they're beautiful. And uh, I said, yes, they're beautiful and they have air conditioning in it. But you don't get on time. I have a solution. Why don't we use people who are all around? Announce it every time they have an emergency by pager so they can run and stabilize the patient. We'll get motorcycles for the volunteers to respond. They threw me out of the building very fast. They said, never come visit us again. We're not interested in hearing this. So I was stuck. I had a solution for a problem, but I just needed access to the medical medical information, like addresses and who's having what. They didn't want to share cause. So I was I was looking for a solution. And I told my friend, don't worry. Israel was created with the greatest innovation ever. And you and know that is chutzpah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we don't take no for an answer. And I went ahead and I I got some money for my bar mitzvah and, and some other guys chipped in. But you're 17 years old at this point, right? I wasn't even. It was it was a summer when I was still 16 and a half years old. I was almost 17. I went to New York, had a great time. I went into Radio Shack. God bless their memory. It was a great store for every little boy. Love that store. I bought two police scanners and I started listening. I came back to Israel. I opened an underground command center that I can listen to any emergency the police are dispatching, fire, ambulances, and I started sending it out to my friends. Every time they had a call, i page them. They have a call somewhere, respond, and they would just run, leave everything and run. They were all volunteers. They were all excited about this. And I would be the dispatcher. I was 17. So I was like really excited. The first person I actually responded myself was a man hit by a car. And I was around the corner in my father's bookshop. I ran there. It took me 30 seconds. I'm getting the, everyone surrounding this guy on the floor. He's bleeding from all over. And I see he has a, a really bad bleeding from his neck. I take my yarmulke off my head because I had no bandages on me. And I just pushed it as much as I could. 
and stopped his bleeding. 20 minutes later, an ambulance shows up. They took him to the hospital. I get a phone call two days later. They say, are you Eli Beer? I said, yes. They said, this man says, my father woke up this morning in Hadassah Hospital. He's alive, thanks to you. And he wants to thank you for saving his life. And when I went to visit him, he gave me the greatest hug I ever got. And he took his hands off me. I saw he had a number on his arm. He was a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz. And all I did is stop his bleeding. I didn't do anything else. And the doctor that came into the room said he was on Pumadim, which is a blood thinner. And if you didn't stop his bleeding, he would have been dead. And that moment I realized you could be the most, you could be the best doctor in the world. You could be a professor from Harvard. <laughs> you can have the fanciest ambulance in the world. You could have five helicopters. You could have anything you want. But if you don't get there in 90 seconds, that person is not alive. Right. So that's why I decided to invest my entire career in life save more and more people. If I save one person because I got there fast enough and I just stopped the bleeding, that's it. I can save more people. And since I started, six and a half thousand other people joined me and we have the fastest medical response worldwide. Our goal is 90 seconds and many of the places in Israel, we're already there. And some places we still need to get more volunteers, but we're going and getting better and better. And that's all we focus on, 90 seconds. Hey, if you've been wanting to serve the world with your gifts and getting paid to do so, if you've been wanting to design and start a business that is genuine, natural, and purposeful because it's fully aligned with who you are, then come on over because I'm going to be opening a world of opportunity and possibility for you, dispelling a lot of the fears that have been holding you back from putting your unique offer out into the world. Yes, I want you to go from purpose to profit. Head over to yaeltrush.com forward slash FPTP. That's yaeltrush.com forward slash FPTP to register for my free live webinar from Purpose to Profit Monday, June 26th at 12 p.m. Eastern. That's at yaeltrush.com forward slash FPTP. Amazing. But Ellie, that bar mitzvah money can only get you so far. <laughs> and that, what, how, that what was a happened? big bar mitzvah I had. That was uh, yeah, apparently so. <laughs> so. Somewhere along the line, you needed to use that chutzpah again and try to find some more money, I'm sure. How did you start that? And how did you learn the art of fundraising? Well, I think I'm the worst fundraiser. Mm, tell me why. I could have raised, I, I think this cause is the best cause in the world. I should have had raised enough money that we don't have, have to raise money anymore. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I really think I could do a better job, but the truth is I love this organization so much. It starts with love. Yeah. Anyone I meet, I tell them how much I love doing what I do and why I love it. And they want to join me. I had Bob Kraft last night speaking at the United Hatzalah Gallery. I never imagined when I was 16 years old that Bob Kraft, which I didn't know then, but the owner of the Patriots will come and respect our organization and love it and support it and donate so much money to the organization. But it came because he saw me one day and he met me and he said, I want to be part of what you do because you look so passionate about it. Mm -hmm. 
I was, I was passionate. So I really, I, I'm not a fundraiser. I'm just a person who loves saving lives. And in order to do this, I need to have people join me, either volunteer your time and come jump in to bomb attacks and save people from a burning fire or, or give some of your money. It's either that or that. Um, and, and people decide what they want to do. And I think we, we the, the, the fact that we have 1,000 volunteers who are devoted to this and will not leave us, they want to stay forever. Same reason we have donors who love us so much and they don't want to leave us forever. When I met the first serious donor of United Atsala, his name was Dan Schwartz. He was a partner in your capital, which is a big hedge fund. I didn't even know what, how to spell hedge fund. <laughs> I didn't know what a hedge fund is. So I came to meet him. He was the nicest guy in the world. And he said to me, I love what you do. I want to donate a motorcycle and a motorcycle. It was like $18,000. It's double now, but this is 20, over 20 years ago. And I said to him, wow, it's amazing. He's just, he wrote me a check. And he said, I want to choose you another friend of mine, Bert Cohen, who's a big hedge fund guy. And I, and I, and I meet Bert Cohen. He says, Bert gives me a check for an ambicycle for another. I said, it's crazy. Like these guys, I never saw that. Like I used to get a hundred dollars, like $20 because my friends, that's all they could afford, but they gave every volunteer used to donate money and still does. So wow. I, I said, uh, okay. And then he says to me, I wanted you to see a guy called Mark Gerson. Mark Gerson was starting a company then called Gerson Learner, GLG. Incredible company. It's like a network of over a million experts in fields, in different fields. And, and they, and he, and they work as consultants for big hedge funds, banks and law firms, you know, in their spare time, they give advice. You know, it's an incredible network. Well, GLG, he started it from nothing. I met him when he was just starting. And I, and I met him. He's an incredible, passionate person. He looks at me and he's like, he, he can't believe this thing is existing in Israel. He sees ambulances stuck in traffic. Right. In New York. And he says, you came up with a solution that could save millions of people. I said, yes, this could save millions of people. It could save trillions of dollars of, of taxpayers. Because if you bring a patient to the hospital who was treated 20 minutes after he had a collapse, you're, you're costing the economy millions of dollars that will have to be supporting this family that will have to treat someone forever. Right. In damage and, and needs 24 hours assistance. So I said, you come there in time, you save all the money, you save all the time. And I said, the ROI of investing on a motorcycle is incredible. You spend $18,000. Today it's 36. It goes out to 700 emergencies a year. Mm-hmm. And he says, I love it. I want to give my first ambicycle. I never gave such a big amount. I'm going to give you $18,000. This is over 20 years ago. I said, Mark, this is Mark Gerson. I said, Mark, I want you to be the chairman of our board. And he says, me? I said, yeah. And he was a simple guy. If you see him, you never imagine a guy is a brilliant, successful businessman. And I looked at his eyes. I saw passion. And I saw he's a smart, brilliant, good, decent human being. And he said, me as a chairman, I, I don't mind being on the board, but I'm no one. No one knows me. I said, well, Mark, I want you to be the chairman. He says, no, please join someone else to be the chairman. I'll just be the board. Choose someone else from the board to be the chairman. I said, I can't. You need to be the chairman. He says, why? <laughs> I said, because you're the only one on the board. <laughs> and that's how I started. And he was the one. Then I asked Bert, and then I asked Dan to join. 
And then today, it's the most incredible organization that has, we have the best donors in the world. We have the best volunteers in the world. I treat the volunteers the same way I treat the donors with love and care because they are the biggest donors. When a volunteer of ours goes out 600 times a year to save people and he doesn't get paid or she doesn't get paid and they spend money on gasoline, they don't get refunded on that. They are the biggest donors. Right. Bigger than Bob Kraft. When a volunteer of ours who makes $2,500 a month and has a family of six kids and has to support them and has to pay gasoline for the and he pays every month hundreds of shekels of his salary, of her salary on this ambicycle, they are bigger donors mm-hmm. than his donor. Right, right. You have an army, Ellie. You have an army. Now, first, we now we're already in the ambicycles, but we... We had a a little team of undercover agents. When did the when did the uh, cover gets blown? When when what happens that now it's not undercover anymore? What's that transition like? What happened there? So it really it's interesting. I never expected it. I mean, so I really thought it was going to keep me busy for a few months. I get out of it. I I was planning to to, to do the army and then doing the business. I was very I had businesses when I was twelve years old already. I was I was. Mm-hmm. Of school. I graduated from Cheda when I was more or less 12. Uh, my Rebbe said, never come back. <laughs> and I never came back. It was, like, it was, I didn't agree with everything they tried teaching me. I wanted to learn more and other way, whatever. I love Cheda. It was good years, but I thought I graduated on time when I was 12 years old. So I went to work for my father in his bookshop and I opened my first business when I was 12, Arba Minim, like every child in Yerushalayim. <laughs> four species. And it was incredible. It's a month of work, more or less, that covered my rest of the year of operations. Anything I needed, bicycles, and whatever. I had from that month of work, and then I opened more and more branches. I ended up having over 25 branches in Yerushalayim selling Arba Minim. And it was great, but I, I got bored after a while. I went to another business of tourists. I used to get buses and get people to travel to t- trips around Israel because a lot of kids grew up without cars. No one, the parents didn't have money for cars. Right. So I go on trips. So I used to get an Egged bus for 800 shekel, charge 50, 40 shekel for every one who joins, get a tour guide for 200 shekel, and the rest was my profit. So I did that when I was 14 or 15. And then when I was 16 and less, I, I, I decided I want to focus on life-saving. I got married very young. And then it started growing. This whole Hatzalah thing started growing in Yerushalayim. But other branches started branching. And it's mostly Orthodox Jews. Uh, and then one day in 2006, during the Lebanon War, when the missiles of the Hezbollah were hitting in the north of Israel, I was sitting in a bomb shelter hiding with my other friends that came to help. And I realized that we need to unite the whole country under one because Hatzalah wasn't united. Everyone was separate. Every brand mm-hmm. since then was separate. And I called in a meeting of people I didn't speak to before. Everyone had their own shtetl, like they'd say. Right. Everyone, like, it's more or less like a shul. Everyone builds his own shul. Don't talk to me. I don't talk to you. You don't steal my, my congregate. I don't steal yours. It was like crazy. You don't they make a million too close to mine. You don't, it was like that. And actually, during the war of the Hezbollah, we're trying to kill every one of us. And I said, why don't we unite? 
And it was like the hardest thing in my life. I never imagined in my life I'll ever fight so much to unite people. Wow. Very hard, but it was a success. And I said, I'm going to have secular Jews, religious Jews, ultra-Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews, and non-Jews, men and women saving lives together. And it was not easy because, oh, oh, you're going to have Baba? I don't like Baba. I don't want to have Vizhnitz. Or you're going to have secular Jews? I don't want secular Jews. I don't it started a whole balagan, but I, I was so... I was fighting for it for a long time. I got the rabbis in Israel to support this. The main rabbis, Rabbi Eliashev, Rabbi Kain Kanievsky, all the big rabbis, Rabbi Yovadi Yosef, and, and we call it United Hatzalah. And this changed the way. That was the day. It was July 2006 um, that we actually disrupted the system properly. We decided to invest in uniting people and bringing people together and we can bring this mission together. And today we have six and a half thousand people. I would say half of them are not even orthodox. We have a thousand women in the organization. We have Arabs, 550 Arabs volunteers. So it really made a big difference and that's when it blew up. And today we go out to almost 2,000 emergencies every day. That's, it's it's really incredible. It, it really is amazing. I want to go back to something you, you mentioned when you were talking about the beautiful people you've been able to meet through the fundraising, the way you describe these individuals. It's interesting, Ellie, because you, you may know that people tend to assume that people with a lot of financial resources are not perhaps a fine character. Um, because of the nature of your work, you've rub shoulders, more than rub shoulder, you've established real relationship with some of the wealthiest people all over the world. Based on those experiences, what, what what's your take on wealth and human character? Well, I, I'll tell you something. I, I, I look at wealth and richness, really, like if someone's rich, right? What is someone's rich? Rich is, you could be the richest guy in the world and you're not really rich. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rich, but you're not rich. You're very poor. Because you don't think you're rich. You're not happy with what you have. I, I actually taught a lot of the people who have money that giving money away makes you rich. Right. It makes you happy. And it's not something I invented. This is all in the Torah. Everything says in the Torah. This whole thing about giving 10% of your money. Hashem really tricked us. <laughs> really tricked us to something that will help us. It's like, yes. if you eat less, right? If you eat less, you look good. Mm-hmm. You, eat a lot, you get fat and you can't breathe and you die from diseases. You need to know how to give some away. And if you know how to give some away, you will be a happy human being. Mm-hmm. The richest guy in the world. And it's in the 92nd book. I have a friend, Paulie, or not a Farka. She's a billionaire from South America. A wonderful human being. He's long blonde here, very famous around it's everywhere. And he took me around on his private jet once to, to see where his grandparents came from in Europe. We went to, to Romania, to Satamara. And he said, I want to introduce you to the person who actually his family saved my father's family, my father and his family during the war, during the Holocaust. And I want to thank him for it. I want to go give him a gift. And he, and he decided he's going to give him a 250,000. Euro bag of money. Hmm. Okay. And I was like shocked. How do you walk around with like because he's so he's so thankful. He's so 
This guy, Leonardo Farkas, is really rich because he knows what tzedakah is. He's really into tzedakah and he loves it, but he also likes to give tips and he likes to give people a thank you. He goes into a restaurant, someone smiles to him, he'll give him $500. It's he knows what we're being rich. He really is rich. So he he says, I want to give this guy. So I'm holding the money for him, shivering because I'm afraid like I'm going to be surrounded with a bunch of, it's a little tiny village. And I'm, and we go to this house, and this house is like falling apart, old Russian car outside, and he and this guy prepares a whole meal for us, and he and he has chickens wandering around the backyard, and he had two chickens, fresh chickens on the chi- on the table for us. I eat kosher, so I couldn't eat anything, but it was beautiful what he made for us. And and this guy Leonardo says to him, "I want to thank you for what your father and mother did, or your grandparents did." And he says, "I want to ask you." Your house, you like this house? He says, I love this house. Look at this, how beautiful it is. He says, what about fixing this house? Fixing? It's so beautiful. I love everything about it. He says, what about your car? Are you happy with your car? He says, I love the car. Look at this. I even have air conditioning in the car. And he's going on. What about your children? He says, my, my kids are all set up. My daughter's in university. She's learning medicine. He says, how much do you earn every month? He says, I earn 280 euros a month. And he says, what about your wife? She earns 230 or whatever, 250. He says, is that enough for you? He says, that's plenty. I don't need more of this. I have everything. I save money every month. We have money for the future. So Leonardo says, listen, I want to give you money. I want to give you a gift. Do whatever you want. Buy a new house. Buy a few homes. Buy this. He looks at him like he's crazy. So Leonardo, he says, I have everything I need. I'm, I'm a happy person. I, I don't need anything. I don't want anything. Please don't give me anything. I don't want anything. I'm happy to meet you. I heard the stories my father told me about you. This is the greatest thing I can do to meet you. He says, I have, he opens the bag and, and he says, I want to give us to you. Take this. And he pushes it back to him. I don't want the money. And I was shocked. I was like looking at this story. I, I never in my life. I wrote a letter to my kids that day and I wrote them. I just met the richest guy in the world. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't Leonardo Farkash. It was this guy who is the happiest guy. I'm sure that if Bill Gates would have gotten that bag, he would have taken it. Yes, he would have probably given away to charity, but he would have taken it. And he wouldn't have said, no, I don't need it. And no rich guy would say, I mean, not many would, but a lot of them would not. This richness, you could be a wealthy person, but if you don't need, if you don't know how to give some away, you're not a happy person. Beautiful. I'm a lucky guy that I got to know greatest people in the world who do know how to give their money away. And I realize very fast, I don't waste my time. If people don't know how to give when they have money, I'm wasting my time. I would, I don't mind being friends with them and everything, but I'm not going to push them. I'm never push someone to give. They want right. to give. I love, I love when people want to be part of what I believe in. And yeah. Well, it's it's a very easy. Sa- I mean, it's not a sale. It's like you said, you just love it, and it's it's the, the greatest ROI. I mean, you're literally saving a human life, <laughs> thousands of human lives. Like, I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, think about it. You know what? We got to almost two thousand. Let's see, seventeen hundred emergencies a day. And if you take our budget, divide it, and and see how much it costs to go out to one call, costs us twenty dollars. If you divide almost 700,000 emergencies a year without budget, it's $20 a call. Mm-hmm. 
And if you take all the calls that are not life-saving out of there, just break it down to the calls that we actually have. If you, we have 1,700 calls, if we only have 170 life-saving a day or 150 life-saving a day, you break it down to it's going to cost less than $500 to save one person. And how much would you how much would you spend to save a life you love or any life? Right. We do this every day and we see the results. People with serious, severe heart attacks, strokes, car accidents, bomb attacks and shootings. And it happens every day that we respond to these calls and we make a difference and we save people. And we say that you, you could be investing your money in, in, in research for, for, for really important things and see results in 20 years. But here in Atzala, United Atzala, you see it immediately. A hundred percent. Now, Ellie, you've seen some of the hardest things you, you know, terrorist attacks, natural disasters, trauma, your own volunteers, you know, the loss of their lives. You almost lost your life during COVID. You went through through a very hard time. What, what do you think keeps you going? What helps you get out of bed when things get really, really hard? Cause I know you've been through hard things. I've been to a lot of hard things and I'm always going through hard things. It's not easy when I do seeing hard things. I mean, my own tragedy was one of the most worst pros a person could be involved with. And seeing volunteers who were killed on the way to emergency, seeing their families and saying, telling a wife of a, of a volunteer of ours that your husband just died on an ambulance cycle on the way to a call. I've been to these situations and it's hard, but I realized and I told my team, we're in a war, a 24-hour war against the worst enemy called the devil. Mm. The devil wants to compete with us and kill as much people as he could. You know, the say. He drives a black, big motorcycle. We drive the orange motorcycles. We should get there fast. And you could never let anything stop you. Yes, you go through hardships. You go through hard times. You go through... Situations where you feel like enough is enough. I was dying in the hospital. The doctor said I had a 5% chance survival three years ago. They put me in a coma on a ventilator. I said, I have to continue. I, I can't stop. Yes, I took a break a month on a ventilator. But I said to Shem, if I'm saved, I'm going to work 10 times harder. I didn't do enough. I should do more. Wow. To make sure no one will ever die waiting for help. That's my goal. And I'm not going to make anything stop me. This is it. I'm focused on second mission. I will recruit you one day to be a volunteer. Or Amen. Now you're donating your time, which is also a volunteer job. And I just want to say that I appreciate anyone who's involved and anyone who smiles to me and say, thank you. I, I, I always say, this is give me chizuk. I do, I, I do hard things and, and I need sometimes a, a hug and a thank you. And that's it. And I keep going. Ellie Beer, we're going to let you go because you have a lot of lives to go out to save and a lot of important meetings in Manhattan. I could stay talking with you all day. And one day, hopefully we get to meet in person. I want to know how how we can learn more, how listeners can get involved, donate to Hatsala. Please tell us where to find you guys. So first of all, I'm so easy to access. I'm like the easiest access in the world. My phone doesn't stop beeping. And my my email is easy. It's Eli at israelrescue.org. Uh, so you can email me. But our website is such a nice website, israelrescue.org. Easy. We don't call it United Atzala because it's too hard because people got into Hezbollah by mistake. 
money there. They're the bad guys. Uh, IsraelRescue.org. And then we also have the book come, that came out, which is incredible. And a lot of my stories are there. 90 seconds. Uh, kids who are eight years old or six years old were reading it. And 90 people. My, my two of my children already read it, Ellie. <laughs> so you can buy it on Amazon. It's called 90 seconds. It doesn't take 90 seconds to get it, but you probably get it in a day. Yeah. But and, and you and you'll sit down and don't and we don't want to stop. So you'll read it in a day. That was me. <laughs> yes, exactly. It takes it's a so day. Good. It's such a really. I I I didn't write it. It was written by a guy who wrote fifty books, and it's his best book. He told me that. Yeah, it's excellent. And uh, you can get it on Amazon or an art scroll, and get motivated to get involved with something, either with us or anything good. And you should keep your beautiful podcast going on because thank you. Love it and, Keep smiling and making people happy and doing good things. Thank you, Ellie. Ellie Beer, you're such an inspiration. Thank you so much for everything that you do. It's really such a kiddush Hashem. And I feel honored to have got to know you and know more about United Hatzalah. And everybody, I encourage everybody to go check them out and get involved. This is really critical, so important for our mission in the world, which is really to bring light into the world. What the greatest light is to keep people alive, isn't it? So thank you. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Ellie Beer for stopping by, giving us more than 90 seconds. His time is so precious and his mission so crucial, so I am incredibly grateful to Ellie. The book again is 90 Seconds, The Epic Story of Ellie Beer and United Hatzalah, and it really is epic. You only got a snippet of it today, so I highly recommend you grab the book on Amazon. And please, please head over to IsraelRescue.org to donate, whether it be your time, your money, or both, to this wonderful cause. That's IsraelRescue.org. Thanks again for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. It really is the best way you can help support this show because it lets Apple know that this is a show they can recommend to other listeners like yourself. Many listeners find the show thanks to the Apple algorithm, which is driven by you your reviews and ratings. I will be back here on Friday to answer your questions and also be sure to check out my upcoming live free webinar from purpose to profit at yaeltrush.com forward slash FPTP. Have a great day.